This is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. Hey, Commonwealth. It's a joy to be with you today. Normally, we would be uh, celebrating Palm Sunday together. Um, and even if you're not watching this on Sunday, that, that's what this moment would certainly celebrate. We would see kiddos running around, laying down the palm branches and, and singing Hosanna. We probably would do that with our kids' ministry even. But this week is certainly a little different, um, as is our, all of our routines and rhythms as we find ourselves yet again um, kind of watching this on our own or, or watching this with, with our family or, or even maybe just by ourselves. Um, but where we are in, in the story of, of our actual move to Easter, this being Palm Sunday, next week being Easter Sunday, it's also where we find ourselves in the book of John. Now, we've kind of stepped out of, of preaching John for the last couple of weeks as we've spoken directly to how how all of our redirection and realignment of our world and, and tried to speak truth to that. And, and even in last week, it was so incredible to see so many testimonies uh, of God's faithfulness and so many testimonies um, of just what he's doing and how he's, he's answering prayers and, and, and his deeds are displayed in the lives of our people. And it's been incredible to see that we still are getting to see um, from one another in our prayer times, in our communion times, and, and in our commissioning times to, to hear stories of God's faithfulness. But today we're going to get back into, into our uh, study of the book of John. And so we're going to be in John chapter 19. I'm about to read a lot of scripture for you today. Um, John chapter 19, verses 17 through 42. As we cover the ground um, leading up to the moment of resurrection, which Kurt's going to invite us into next week as we unpack John 20. But today in John 19, verses 17 through 42, uh, if you have your Bibles, you're invited to follow along with me, um, but it'll also be on the screen. It says this, And he went out, bearing his own cross, to a place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with, and with him two others, one on either side, with Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather write, This man said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, and so... Woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things by standing, but the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus, where his mother, where his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. 
Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, so they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus they see, they, and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. But these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and another said, they will look on him who they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take the body of Jesus. So Pilate gave him permission. Now he came and he took away his body. Nicodemus also, who, who earlier had come to see Jesus at night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for um, our time together today. We thank you for all that you have invited us into, into your word, into this truth. Um, God, we just pray that we see this story of uh, crucifixion not just be a moment of history that informs our faith, um, but a moment today that transforms our faith. Uh, God, we pray that, that we live in light of the cross and of the resurrection, and we pray that you just uh, speak to our hearts. You speak that second sermon over devices or televisions or laptops, that you, you speak that second sermon louder than anything that, that we could preach or proclaim um, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear your truth this, this day. In your holy and precious name, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. So there are tons of things going on here that we could teach concerning the resurrection. In fact, the resurrection, or not the resurrection, the crucifixion. The crucifixion is, is, the one, is one of the stories that every single gospel account obviously is going to detail and describe and, and, sh- and shed a light on. And, and so we could go through every single gospel account and offer you different perspectives on the crucifixion. Uh, there are scientific perspectives. There are, are um, perspectives of understanding exactly what the, the science of crucifixion and execution were for the Romans. Um, there are medical perspectives. In fact, when you see the moment where it talks about him being pierced and blood and water coming out of his side, like there is a, a medical perspective that explains why that, that was uh, a, a sign that he had died. In fact, it even, John even draws attention. He said, the guy that, that is telling this, that's bearing witness to this, uh, his testimony is true. Basically, you can take his word for it that Jesus actually died. You can take his word for it. There's a medical perspective that we could talk about. There are conversations that happened on the cross that some other gospel accounts point to. Things like his interaction with the, the, um, the thieves to his right and to his left, uh, but also his interaction with the centurion. There's his final sermon in Aramaic where, where he speaks out um, the beginning of Psalm 22, the my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and, and the reason that most of the authors still even acknowledge that in Aramaic is because it would have had a contextual uh, um, just it would have, have gripped people. It would have been a memorable moment in the lives of every single person there in the same way that, that you and I might hear quotes like 
four score and seven years ago, or, or, or December 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy. Is, our minds go to moments in history, so their minds at the moment that Jesus declares, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We could talk about all those different um, perspectives of the, of the crucifixion, and in fact, we should, but we don't have time to cover all of those today. So even this week, as, as you are in this Passion Week leading up to, to Easter Sunday and Good Friday, um, we would love to, to invite you to even do some of those that research yourself. In fact, we might even put out some resources that so, some articles or some, some blogs or even some books to check out or podcasts that might shed some more light on, on all the aspects of the crucifixion. But today we're going to kind of stay in John's account and focus on a few things. Um, and, and we're going to focus on, on really the fact that, that John's account is a little bit different than the other accounts. Much like John's gospel is different from the other three gospels in the sense that it's not called one of the synoptics. Um, meaning that the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all kind of run um, pretty much a, a very similar path in terms of, of stories and chronologies uh, and, and sermons and messages that Jesus spoke, all the different signs and wonders. But John's gospel set up uniquely different. And it is always set up to, to encourage and invite us to believe and to believe in the Christ and to see him as the the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And yet when we see this story of the crucifixion, we really see not a narrative that is full of details, but a narrative that showcases suffering, much like all the crucifixion narratives. We see this narrative of suffering starting in verse 17. And, and it is Jesus having taken the abuse of the flogging and the torment uh, from, from, from chapter 18 before or earlier in chapter 19, we, we, see the, we see Jesus having taken physical abuse. We see him emotionally abused. We see him uh, mentally abused. We, we see even, even Pilate mocking him, like a psychological abuse, that on the cross it is written, King of the Jews. The, the Jewish leaders actually were upset about this, as you saw in the text. They actually wanted it to say, this man said he was the King of the Jews, but that wasn't good enough for the Roman official. Pilate, the Roman official, said, this is the king of the Jews. There's another way that that, that had been said throughout the Old Testament, that this was the God of Israel. And the Romans, in the midst of their power, in the midst of their control, in the midst of, in the, midst of the ferocity and the advancement of their kingdom, that day, at that place of the skull, God was going to be killed. The king of the Jews, the hope of the Jews on display and dead. And we see this being written in every language, Aramaic and Greek and Latin, so that everyone that was attending would see the Romans that day. They killed God. And we see this narrative of suffering, but it's not just Jesus' suffering. In fact, there's an interesting inclusion in verse 25 where Jesus has this moment where he's on the cross. And in John's account, he only says three sentences, um, or really speaks three times. He says technically four sentences. If you have a Bible with red letters and you go through John 19, 17 through 42, you only see um, three different moments where there are red letters. And this is the first one. In verse 25, he says, Woman, behold your son. And then to John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the author of this book, he says, Behold your mother. 
This is the moment that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and John are closest to suffering. In fact, when you read this, it says in verse 25, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary Magdalene, and John, standing by the cross of Jesus. Now, what's interesting about that is that in every other gospel account, it talks about those people being present at the crucifixion, but being distant. Now, does that mean there's a crucifixion between John and Matthew, Mark, and Luke? No. I just think this was a moment where John wanted to highlight there was a moment that they were close to the cross. If you've ever been to a funeral visitation, even in our modern understanding of of a funeral home, there's a moment where you're up by the casket, be consoling the family that's closest, and then there's a moment where you're away, you're standing at a distance, you've created some space, maybe catching up with some other people that you're seeing at the at the funeral home or at the visitation for that you haven't seen in a while. And, and so there's this moment where the family of Jesus is really close to the cross, but as condemnation and shame. And we know that the crucifixion would do that. Like the crucifixion, anyone that had been crucified actually affects families for generations because of the shame that it brings on and the shame that it induces. And so as the family of Jesus started to feel that shame, I am sure that they distanced themselves. But this is a moment when they were close. And Jesus looks at his mom and he says, behold your son. And he looks at his one of his best friends, and he says, behold your mother. Now, why did John highlight this? It's because Jesus always speaks to those who suffer. He always does. Even though he was suffering, he always speaks to those who suffer. In fact, because he is the suffering servant, he knows how to best speak to those who suffer. It's not ironic that the same author that authored the story of Lazarus reminds us here that the same Savior that cried tears, Jesus wept with his friend who had lost her brother, is the same Savior that on the literal cross of his own crucifixion looks to the eyes of his family and his friends and says, behold one another, love one another, take one another, be close to one another. He always speaks to suffering. In fact, Isaiah 53 would say that he was despised and rejected by men. And this should be a great reminder to us in our suffering of how he meets us in it, that he, in Isaiah 53, is a man of sorrows. He is acquainted with grief. Jesus always speaks to suffering. Our world today has had a suffering moment. In fact, many of us would consider what we're living in right now to be a season of suffering. But I'm going to be honest with you, over the first few weeks of of this new kind of coronavirus rhythm and routine, I have been tempted to always answer the question of how am I living in this current moment through the process of my individual self? You know, for me personally, um, it's not been all bad. I've been able to scale back. I've, I've read things I've not been able to read for a long time. I've been able to get some projects around my house. I've been more intentional uh, over even digital platforms with people that, that maybe I've not been as consistent staying in touch with. I've had creative expressions in my free time. I've been reading and praying and, and walking more and, and, and being more in tune with, with day-to-day life. And at the end of that all, it's like, well, that doesn't sound like that's suffering much at all. But I'm going to be honest with you. It wasn't until earlier this week that the switch flipped for me. What does coronavirus mean to me? That's the wrong question. The question I started asking myself is, what does coronavirus mean for us? 
And when I start answering it through an us mentality, when I start answering it through a corporate perspective or a corporate worldview of how this virus is affecting not just Andrew, but our city, our state, our nation, and ultimately the entire world, my heart got heavy. As my perspective changed, my heart changed. And it got heavy and it got burdened because I started seeing and reading and, and, and thinking of it through the stories of people that have loved ones that are um, infected with this illness, of, of the stress and the burden of our caregivers, our doctors and our nurses, uh, and what they're facing every single day, and in some places even more intensely than others. I got to hear hearing stories even of how their, their colleagues and coworkers were now being infected with this virus that they were fighting. I've heard stories of economic strain, and the reality is that the economic strain that ultimately affects all of us affects those of us that have the least. It affects those that have the least the most. And as I started to put on those lenses and hear stories of our, our brother Guna in India that talks about that if, if the nation of India, many of whom are impoverished, if, if they start to really practice social isolation and social distancing, then what might happen would be welcoming starvation if ultimately it's choosing which way they wanted uh, to be afflicted. Do they want to starve to death? Or do they want to face a global virus? And as I started to think about this through different lenses and through different perspectives and started to make the perspective less about me and more about we, then I started to understand that we live in a moment of global suffering. There's some people in our midst that are suffering because important dates uh, in their life are changing, whether those are, are graduations or, or weddings. There are some people in our midst that are suffering because a friend or a family member has had a virus. There are some that are suffering because of the economic strain, but all of us are suffering, and I've not even talked about the deaths yet. When I started to watch the death numbers from a global standpoint, even to a local standpoint of, of hearing our governor say it's a tough day as he rattles off some numbers to seeing that the United States is now facing death tolls in the, that, are, that are reaching four digits and, and going even higher, I'm sure, in the coming days to see the graphic that our own White House puts out that if we do a good job with this, if we meet all of our um, suggestions and recommendations that we might as a nation be able to keep under a quarter of a million people passing away at the result of this virus. And when I started to think about the deaths that are going to mount up over the coming days, weeks, and months, my heart started to get even heavier because I am concerned that many of those lives, many of those lives might not, might not just be lost on this earth. They might be lost for all eternity. John Piper says a quote. It's been something I've kept in front of me for the past week that says, we as the people of God should care about all suffering, but we should care mostly about eternal suffering. Why? Because Jesus cares about all suffering, but he cares mostly about eternal suffering. He greets the ladies at the cross and the disciple John the same way he greets us in our momentary suffering. He is with us. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us, near to us, close to us. But he also meets them at the cross with the display of his life that says, I don't just care about your momentary suffering. I care about your eternal suffering. He cares about 
our eternal suffering at the cross. He lets out this phrase. It's actually one of the others that he mentions in the, in the Gospel of John. It is finished. To tell us die. What is? What did Jesus finish? A couple weeks ago, we mentioned that Elijah built an altar or rebuilt an altar of the Lord to see God's fire fall down from heaven and, and to be on display that he is God uh, and that no one else is. And, and likewise, I even gave a teaser a couple weeks ago that Jesus was going to forever rebuild the altar of the Lord, one that couldn't be torn down or trampled over or built over or destroyed. And he was going to do that in, in the form of the cross. And so when he says from the cross, it is finished, uh, it is finished. That moment on the cross becomes the, the moment um, when his better offer of a life with him, a life for eternity, a life believing in him, a life um, restored and redeemed and ransomed by, by the work of Jesus. It's that moment that his better offer is actually made good for us. So three things happen in that it is finished moment. And I want to get through these so, so that we can see the, the finality of exactly what he was finishing. Three things. First of all, he took away our sin. He took away God's wrath from us. And he bridged the distance between us and God or us and the Father. Now, certainly there were more than three things happened. Again, I said I'm not going to be able to preach every crucifixion uh, uh, story today uh, or every bit of theology that comes in this work of justification on the cross of Christ. Can't preach them all today, but I'm going to talk about these three. First and foremost, at the very beginning of John, we see in John 1.29, John the Baptist actually say, points at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On that cross was the forever sacrificial Lamb of God. Who needs him? All of us do. Real quick, where you are right now, I want to invite you to do a little exercise. If you've ever told a lie or been deceitful in any way, raise your hand. Just go ahead and raise your hand. You'll know that my hand's up. Trace, who's here filming this with us, his hand is up. Um, if, if you're sitting by yourself, it might look awkward if you just have the hand raised. But if you've got anybody else in the room, uh, kids, husband, wife, um, friend, neighbor, anything like that, I expect everybody's hand to be raised. Now, why is this an exercise that we're doing? Well, what's this? The fact that we recognize that, that we have a tendency to to do something that's, that's wrong, like, like tell a lie or be deceitful, it should be just the starting point for the recognition of our own sin. Who needs Jesus? Everybody with their hand raised does. So kiddos, if you're watching, your mom and dad, they need Jesus. They're not just good on their own. They need Jesus. Husbands, wives, if you're watching, your, your spouse needs Jesus. Like they're not just, they're not, their attraction, your attraction to one another is not what they need. They need Jesus. Parents, as your kids raise your hand, like they're the most sweet, adorable things in the world, but they need Jesus. Every single one of us need Jesus. And because we have the presence of sin in our life, and it's far greater than even a white lie that we can tell and kind of chuckle about in a raise our hand exercise, but because we have the presence of God in our life, it's an indication that we need Jesus. In fact, Tim Keller writes, the prerequisite for receiving the grace of God is to know that you need it. The prerequisite for receiving the grace of God is to know that you need it. And why do you need it? Why do you need the grace of God? Why do you need him to take away our sin? Because God's wrath burns against our sin. It burns against sin. In Exodus 32, it says that his anger is hot and burns 
against sin. And this is a moment where, where he's burning against the, the sin of the people of God right after they have been shown a, a Ten Commandments in which to live and immediately break them. And his anger burns against sin. And it does so righteously. He cannot stand sin. In fact, he cannot even be in the presence of sin. His holiness makes no room for sin. He is always angry toward it, which sounds like really bad news for us because we've already raised our hand. And the fact is, we raised our hand about like, oh yeah, we've told a lie. We've been deceitful. But there are secret places in my life and in yours. There are motives. There are attitudes. There are desires that if we're honest, we don't want anybody to see that they display the rotten side of humanity, not the redeemed side. And the fact of the matter is that God knows every single one of those things equally as much as the confession of having told a lie and raising our hand. And his wrath doesn't wink at any of those spots in our life. In fact, it righteously burns against it. So how is this good news? Because at the cross of Jesus Christ, him taking away our sin means that he also took away God's wrath. That God's wrath that was intended for me and you was, was intercepted by Jesus. And, and the wrath that would, the God's wrath that would rightly burn against my sin and yours fully was poured out on his son on the cross as a replacement for mine and your sin. Not just for our past sin, but for our future sin once and forevermore. Because of our faith and trust in the work of Jesus Christ. Our shortcomings, our failures, our dirty hidden thoughts and places, they no longer condemn us or speak shame over our life. Instead, the righteousness of Jesus rewards us, declares us faithful and righteous, and speaks um, identity over our lives. And so that's what we get at the it is finished moment. He took away our sin. He took away God's wrath. And, and, and let me just give you a scripture earlier I read from Isaiah 53. Let me continue in that as to where we see this. Um, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way. But the Lord laid upon him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So he takes away our sin. He takes away God's wrath. And he does one more thing. He removes the distance between us and God. In John chapter 14, we preach this a while ago, it says that, um, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. He's the only way to get there. And, and we, we, talk about, we talk about having a relationship with, the, with God as something that, that happens only to believers. The reality is, is that every single human that's ever been created has a relationship with God. How they relate to God is, what's the, is what the question is. And, and ultimately what we see is that every single person defaultly will relate to God as a righteous judge over their life. Every single person will. We know this. We see this in scripture. Jesus talks about this multiple times. He talks about um, not concerning whether we can live or we can die, but, but not being scared of that, but being scared of the one who can't just kill the body, but can take the soul and to throw it in a place of outer darkness, to throw it in a place 
of hell. He talks about recognizing God as a, as a righteous judge and that every single one of us will have to face that. But the work of the cross says that he changes the relationship. Previously, all I had was to know God as a judge. But now, through the work of Jesus, I can see God as a loving father. That, that he is the way, the truth, and the life that no one comes to the father except through him. With our belief and our confession and our repentance and, and trusting the finished work of Jesus, and not our works, but trusting his work, invites me to crawl into the lap of a loving father and not keep my distance out of fear or shame or, or, or failure to meet his standards. It invites me to approach the throne of grace with confidence, as the book of Hebrews would say, because of the finished work of the Son, Jesus Christ. It, it, it says that I don't have to walk in condemnation anymore, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that there is now no condemnation to those that are in Christ. It changes the nature of my relationship, that God is not the judge that I face. He's the Father that I commune with because of my belief and trust in the finished work of Jesus. He, the loving Father, is now near to us and his spirit is in us. But with that recognition that the work on the cross takes away my sin, takes away God's wrath, takes away our sin, takes away God's wrath and invites us into a new relational standing with the God of all creation, there's an urgency that comes with that, isn't there? There's an urgency. If we're going to be people that care about all suffering, but mostly care about eternal suffering, then there's an urgency that there are many in this world who might be facing uh, death in an entirely new capacity now that it's on every news channel and in front of us every single day. There's a new urgency to say that we don't grieve like people that don't have a hope. We grieve like people that have a hope. We have a hope. We have good news. We have the best news in the world. There are people that have to know this. They have to know that their bad works are, are, are not corrected by an, an over, overabundance of good works. They have to know that the sin in their life invites God's wrath. They have to know that there's a lamb, a perfect spotless lamb that crawled on a cross, that took the, the sin of the world away. They have to know that there's a king that invites them to see and know how loving and how restorative and how redeeming God really can be. They have to know these things. And the way that they know them starts with how we hope. Last week we spoke in Romans chapter five that, that as we persevere and as we grow our character, that it produces a hope in the world. That hope's not for us, that hope's for everybody else, as, as, as you in this season of suffering grow in your knowledge and in your pursuit and in your identity as, as someone marked by the gospel of Jesus, you give off a hope. As I do that, I give off a hope. I display to the world a hope that doesn't disappoint. I grieve like people with a new hope in Jesus. I have hope, and it's that hope. You have a hope. I have a hope. We have a hope. It's that hope that, that really speaks a better word to our nation, to our world right now. You know, in conclusion, I want to think about just the gravity of that moment at the cross. Now, that sign was, was, cruci- was, was nailed to the top. Here is the king of the Jews, 
the God of Israel. We're killing him today. And if you were a bystander, just put it in your, in your frame of reference. If you were somebody that had watched Jesus from a distance for the three years of his ministry, or even for the, for the time that he was in Jerusalem leading up to his death, as you watched his signs and wonders displayed, as you heard of the healings and, and the miracles that had happened, as you heard about a guy that showed up and fed thousands of people with a small um, child's lunch, as you heard about a guy who had walked on water and had calmed a storm, as you heard about a guy that had, that had called a man out of the grave, as you heard about all these things and you wondered, is this really God? Is this really the king? Is this really the Messiah? Is this really the chosen one? If you happen to be in Jerusalem on that Friday and saw him nailed to a cross and saw him pierced in the side and saw water and blood rush out of his body, you would have probably thought, as would I have thought, no, I guess that wasn't him. I guess that's really not the king. I guess God really isn't in control. Even if you're one of his disciples that had bought in and had started to follow him passionately and, and understood an, a new thing about the kingdom of God uh, itself and, and the king uh, being enthroned and you see Jesus die, would you have been led to question if God was in control? Because I probably would have. How can God be in control when the God-man is killed dead? How can God be in control when Jesus is crucified and killed? How can God be in control and this tragedy still happen? In fact, we might be asking that exact same question about our globe right now. How can God be in control? Thousands of people, millions of people infected potentially. Thousands of people facing, have already died and thousands more facing there. How can God be in control? Well, friend, as we look back from our perspective now, was God out of control when Jesus was on the cross? No. No, he wasn't. God was not out of control even when the Son of God died. And he's not out of control in whatever it is that you're facing and you're suffering. He's not out of control because the pandemic is running wild on the face of the planet. He's not, he wasn't out of control then, and he's not out of control now. And because we have that hope, we have to declare that hope as, as loudly as we can, even if it's just in our, in our personal lives, in our families, in our digital connections with people, in our prayers for people. He's never been out of control, and he's not out of control now. I'm going to end with a story. Um, we... Uh, I was having a conversation this week as we've been thinking about what this means to deal with the coronavirus and, and even as a, as a church, as, a, as just a citizen, as myself, and trying to think about a, a more corporate perspective, as I mentioned earlier, um, was having a conversation with my dad. So dad, if you're watching this, thanks, thanks for that. And I love you. Um, but we were having a conversation and he said, he just, he was on speakerphone actually talking to me and Kurt and, um, just encouraging us, and we were talking about the ways that both of our churches are kind of responding to this right now. And uh, he said, you know, I, I felt the Lord ask me a question. This was between God and my dad. Jeff, do you have a, is there a figure that you think gets you through this? You know, and, and immediately when I hear that number, or when I hear that word figure, I'm thinking financial, which is what my dad was thinking through. Is there a, you know, from, from the the strain on our economy to 
you know, to the people that are facing that. To, I know he was in a position that was maybe facing um, laying off some, some workers. And as many of you have been, as many of us have been, you know, either affected by that or, or, or fearing what's coming. And, um, you know, is there, is there a number, is there a figure, is there a, a figure that can get you through this? And he felt very quickly that the Lord remind him that the figure that gets us through this season, it's not a dollar amount, it's not a president, it's not a governor, it's not a vaccine. The figure that gets us through this season is the cross of Jesus Christ. And then next week, we know that that figure does get us through because the grave didn't hold him down. And we get to celebrate that together. There's no number on a paycheck that gets you through coronavirus. There is no number in a vital sign of, a, of, a, of someone that's facing this illness that gets you through. There's no vaccine or leader that gets you through, but there is a savior that gets you through this coronavirus. And I want to invite you to know him. I want to invite you to worship him. And I want you to invite, invite, him, invite you to see him as such and to see him as someone that cares about suffering, but mostly about eternal suffering. And so as we go from this place today, as we come to a moment where Ben and Blair introduce us to the table today, let's take eat and remember the body and blood broken and shed by Jesus for us. But let's also take eat and participate that we're a people that have been seen through whatever hardship, whatever fear, whatever worry, whatever anxiety we face and we're seen through by the work of the cross. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that your cross sees us through, that when you said it is finished, you took away sin, you took away wrath, and you invited us into a perfect loving, perfect loving relationship um, with the Father. We thank you, Jesus, that through your work, we have better news and a better hope, and we have exactly what it takes to be seen through this and every season we face. God, may we live that way with our eyes on the cross. Um, grow our endurance, grow our character, but may we be a people of hope. In your holy and precious name, we ask these things. Amen. Amen.